ahead and pray. We'll be starting a new series. And we just finished, about, finished up the book of Romans. And today we start on um, 1 Peter. 1 Peter, <clears throat> the theme of 1 Peter basically is gospel hope in the midst of suffering. And so this, I'll say last year and even this year there's suffering. And really in this life, Jesus promised or said that there would be many tribulation. So it's, it's given in the normal Christian life. We will face suffering and we will face persecution. And so I want to continue to prepare us to um, embrace the gospel in all seasons of life. And so let's, let's pray and we'll walk through the first two verses today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that is living and active, able to cut and to the, to the joints of, of our marrow, that, uh, that would even divide our intention, <clears throat> intentions and thoughts. And we thank you for your word, which inherently has and contains your will, um, how our life would be transformed. Your word is so powerful. It, it, it has the ability and capability and capacity to convert the soul and to enlighten our eyes and to make, to make us wise. And these are just all valuable things for, for our lives, that you grant us freely and kindly and generously. And so we pray as we hear from you through your word and through your imperfect servant, me, Lord, that your, your Holy Spirit, the teacher, would help us to understand what you intended as you wrote these two verses and as you wrote, penned this book of 1 Peter for, for, your, for your children, for your church today, for your church in years past, and and centuries to come, or, or until you come. So help us to know your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, I, I don't know. I read a lot, or some, but I come across these articles that are just trying to prepare the church in terms of how to come out of the pandemic or our political climate. And kind, I kind of, for a while, I was in this mindset, it's going to be over, like, Next month. Okay, didn't end. <laughs> the next month. All right, didn't end. Uh, six months now, it didn't end. And, you know, we're approaching to about a year we've been in pandemic mode. And, and I'm coming to a conclusion where, you know, I think mask wearing will be a new fashion statement. We're, we're going to be wearing masks probably for a while. Some people may not stop wearing masks just for their own comfort level and, <clears throat> and stuff. So uh, <clears throat> there is no returning back to the way it was. We, we have set course a new direction in human history, how we do things, how we relate, how, <clears throat> how we live. So I believe there's no going back. Um, our, our lives have been rocked and changed. Um, the church has been rocked and changed. The way we go to school and where we go to work has been changed. Some of you guys may never go back to an office again. Some of you guys may not go back to a physical school again. Some of you may. It just depends. Um, but our, our world's been changed and alter, and there's no going back. Um, there's the new normal and the ongoing changes moving forward at varying degrees. And for some of us, we've, our life hasn't changed too much at all. Most of us, some of our lives have changed to some degree. And for some of us, it's changed a lot. Uh, maybe because you've been hit economically, maybe you lost a job, or maybe you lost a loved one or experienced um, injustice of one form or another. And so some, for some of us, it's been 
inconvenient. For others of us, it could be at the whole other extreme. It's been awful and it's been terrible. But at some level, we're experiencing, I would say, some kind of mental, emotional, relational grind that's kind of just grinding on us constantly. And so in the midst of that, um, God is at work. And I want to remind you that God is sovereign over all of what we're experiencing and that what we will, we will experience. And as we look at First Peter today and probably for the next few months, um, we're going to look at a group of people that had it pretty much much worse than we did and for a lot longer period of time. Um, when I think of some Christians or some people I know, they think what we're going through is just the worst thing ever. It's like, it's just like the worst. And I want you to put your mind and thoughts into what the audience is hearing from First Peter as he literally seeks to put the forth the gospel in its fullest sense. And he's literally going to minister to them in several different ways. And I'll explain what that looks like. First Peter is a general epistle, um, like James, like 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, like Jude. Um, Peter is the author of this book, this book was most likely written in July 46 AD after the city of Rome was burned. And so some of the reasons why the epistle or the letter of 1 Peter was written was to address some key areas. And as I, I read this, the introduction to this book, many of the key areas it's seeking to address also lines up with some of our core values of Rooted Church. So I'm going to highlight what Peter's trying to address and remind us of our core, core, some of our key core values at the same time. So as we look through 1 Peter, kind of in the bigger picture, overview sense, we understand that, say, first of all, God is at work. He's ruling and reigning. But at the same time, Satan and his demon are running around. And also we have an de- enemy within, which is called our, our flesh, which is often tempted to, to give in to the flesh and to disobey God's word and also to ignore the spirit of God. And so many times our flesh, Satan and the demon will expose just how we are doing spiritually, how rooted is our faith in the gospel, in God's truth. And what Satan's demons try to do is try to expose our shallowness and try to expose our hypocrisy. And they want to do it to such a degree that they expose ourselves before the world to once and shame us, to make us look like, man, these Christians, they, their lives aren't any different. They're, they, they're, they're struggling just like everyone else. They're, they're sinning just like everyone else. And so they want to expose us. Yet First Peter wants to remind us that we have been called to live holy lives in an unholy world. And so that's the aspect of rootedness. And the, the other part of our, our, our vision is to be rooted in the gospel to reflect God's glory. And so I believe Peter's very concerned that Christians would act like Christians, that Christians would indeed follow Christ when it's easy, when it's hard, and when it's difficult. It's not time to you know, jump the ship or bail out of your Christian life. And so he's going to go through a number of situations and he, when he wants to help us to apply the gospel in all the difficulties we may face. And so some of them that we'll look at 
will be found in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verses 5 through 9, where he talks about how Christians, um, excuse me, do Christians need to be, to need a priest, a priesthood to intercede to God? Or can we go to, to God by ourselves, straight to God ourselves? So we're going to be introduced to the fact that all Christians are made to be priests. Um, we are to be a priesthood of believers. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it begs the question, what is the attitude of a Christian in relationship to the secular government and civil disobedience? Sounds familiar? And so he's going to address that topic um, <clears throat> as we go through 1 Peter. In, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, asks and begs another question. What should a Christian's attitude be in relationship to one's hostile employer? So maybe you feel like your employer is kind of unfair or unjust. You know, how should we act? How should we respond? Or maybe another situation, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, it talks about how should a, a Christian lady conduct themselves? What, how should he, she act and what, how should, what should she wear? And so that's addressed here. Should she be copying, you know, how movie stars and actresses dress on TV? Or does God call women to conduct themselves um, and dress in a certain manner? What happens if there's a certain situation, like in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where a, a wife, a believing Christian wife, is married to an unsaved husband? What do you do in that situation? And so First Peter ox <coughs> begs and asks, answers that question um, and it really explains how to live out the gospel with a husband who <laughs> is your husband that's acting like an unbeliever. So that's areas of rootedness and reflectedness as it relates to what we're going to talk about in First Peter. Uh, one of our core values is unashamed gospel. And so this is another key theme that we'll see in First Peter. Peter's addressing believers who are suffering through much persecution all throughout this little five-chapter epistle, and he was teaching them to hold on, to embrace the gospel in the midst of suffering, and to do so in such a way that you don't lose hope. Some of us feel like, you know, three months, six months, nine months, that's just a long time. I just can't handle this any longer. It's a year. Am I going to lose hope? I want you to know that Jesus Christ is our eternal hope, and he's given us enough, ho enough, enough hope in this life to take us to the life to come. So there's enough hope for sure in God's promises and in Christ's finished work. Um, he also wants us to remind us, Peter wants to remind us that he's given us hope that we could fight and combat bitterness. When things don't go well, and we'll see that things didn't go well for the believers at this time, they could easily become extremely bitter. But he wants them to trust in the Lord and wait and keep their eyes on Jesus Christ and his future return, his second coming. The last purpose and hope and theological theme within this letter that I want to draw out is another core value, uncompromised discipleship and evangelism. It, I find it interesting. There are probably three types of Christians 
that I'm seeing today, there are those in this season that have embraced the gospel like never, ever before. Their faith has grown deeper. They're, they're embracing what they're reading God's word all the more. So that's one category. There's another group that's just kind of still floating around, kind of being tossed back and forth through the different things that are happening. And then there's another group that's just being checked out. <laughs> I mean, they... They they have made um, Disney Plus and Netflix, you know, they, they've increased their industry big time just because they just want to drown their miseries out um, constantly. And so Peter is saying, hey, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of duress, you are still my children. You are still to make disciples. And so he's reminding them that you actually have a re- wonderful opportunity in the midst of suffering and difficulty, to continue to evangelize, to continue to make a defense of the faith that you have, have embraced. And so um, Peter wants to remind him of that. And so many of the people that were actually in the first century came to Christ during this difficult time and later on became a part of a lot of the early churches. I'm sorry, I said this is the last. This is actually not the last, but this is the second to last theme that the the next core value I wanted to hammer home is undeniable identity. Um, again, Satan, de- his demons want to steal our identity, but I, Peter wants to remind and ha- literally hammer home big time what our identity is in Christ. And he just wants to remind us that our identity is secure in Christ. And he wants to remind us that <clears throat> we have a sure identity, that we have been hidden in Christ and not to chuck our identity out the door, but to remind us that we are an object of God's <coughs> uh, promises and <coughs> that we can embrace it and every good gift he's given to us and, <coughs> and they're for us to embrace and to hold dearly. And so my hope as i gone through this brief overview of 1 Peter that it would cause interest and that you would see the importance and the relevance of this book, and that it would just whet your spiritual appetite to read this book several times, four or five times, and anticipate what I'm going to talk about, and wrap your mind and heart up on the different things before um, you come in here. And so we're going to look at seven perspectives of God's sovereign grace this morning. I'm using big theological words because God's big theological words are truths for our soul that are to give us life, to, to feed us well. And so we're going to look at seven perspectives from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, so that we could glorify God, to enjoy His goodness, to experience His grace in our lives, and so that we could understand God's sovereign grace and the different facets um, of what we may be experiencing. And I want you to see it as super relevant. And so the seven perspectives that we're going to look at are as followed. Perspective number one is God's sovereign grace in the apostle Peter's life. The second perspective is God's sovereign grace among the elect exiles. Perspective number three is God's sovereign grace according to foreknowledge. God. Perspective number four is God's sovereign grace in sanctification. Perspective number five is God's sovereign grace in lordship. Perspective number six is God's sovereign grace in security. And then perspective number seven is God's sovereign grace multiplied. So this is this good, juicy stuff that's coming right at you. 
This is really good for us today, and it was great uh, for the believers in the first century. So I'm going to begin with the first perspective of God's sovereign grace in the Apostle Peter's life. If you think of, po- if you think of Peter um, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, out of all the apostles, more is written about him than anyone else in the, the Gospels except for Jesus. Jesus has the most written about him. Second is Peter. So a lot was written about Peter's life. And so if you just kind of start tracing your mind about what did Peter go through? You just remember a lot of the things he went through. He's kind of Mr. Put My Foot in the Mouth. He's the one that was kind of impulsive. He's the one that I would say didn't start off so well, but as he grew to know the Lord, he got better at following him. And we'll kind of trace some of that through. But let's, let's look at the passage. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, the opening verse literally states, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So we know that Peter is apostle of Jesus Christ, but we also know there's a time that he wasn't. And so we'll get, I'm going to trace you a little bit through Peter's life so you just are reminded of God's sovereign grace in his life. We know eventually Peter became the leader amongst leader amongst the other disciples of Jesus Christ or amongst the apostles. We also know that we know this because in several places in the gospel, Peter's name is listed first amongst the disciples, amongst the apostles designating him as kind of the head leader. And we also know his original name in the Greek was Simon, or in Hebrew, it was Simeon. And so <clears throat> he has that background. Peter was the son of Jonas. Also, Peter grew up and was a member of a family who were a bunch of fishermen, all right? And he, also, he lived in the area of Bethesda. Um, which actually Tracy and I went through that town before when we went to Israel in the late 90s. And later he lived in Capernaum. Peter had a brother named Andrew. Andrew had a good brother in a sense. Um, Andrew knew about Christ first and he told Peter about it, about this Christ. And so Peter, I mean, (coughs) Andrew introduced Peter to Christ and Peter basically came to faith. And the fascinating thing is these things came really fast. Peter came to faith, and one of the first things he did was tell his brother. And his brother, <coughs> Peter, came to Christ, and immediately Peter's already telling people about Jesus. And I just find it fascinating. The most instinctive thing for a new believer is to tell others about Jesus. I don't know why it takes us so long to tell others about Jesus. I, I talked to some Christians. They go, I've been a Christian for 10 years, and I've never told anyone about Jesus. And then I start thinking, are you even a Christian? And so I just wonder. Um, <clears throat> the most distinctive things these early disciples did was literally to tell other people. And they told the ones they cared about, their, their brothers, their, <clears throat> their family members. We see that in Mark 1, that... Um, well, let me go more precise. Mark 1, verses 29 and 31, it seems that Peter was, was married, and thus he had a wife, and his wife accompanied him in his ministry. So I, I didn't know that. That was fascinating to me. First Peter, was first call, uh, Peter, the apostle, was called to follow Jesus early in Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And then later in Mark 3, verses 4 through 15, he was appointed as an apostle. 
So he, he became an apostle, granted authority as apostle, and he was granted even these divine abilities to work in and through him to cast out, um, cast out unclean, unclean spirits and every disease and afflictions in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. So it's funny, <laughs> later on, Jesus changed Peter's name um, to Cephas. And then <laughs> this name means stone or, or rock. So, <clears throat> so he gave him a stronger name, I believe, to encourage him to not to say, to say to Peter, hey, you know, you're not just this fisher guy or this guy that made a lot of mistakes, which he did. But as he grew and became impossible and he <laughs> learned to believe Jesus, I believe he gave him this name to remind him that you, you, you can trust in Jesus Christ, the rock himself, and that as you trust in the rock himself, you will become stronger in your faith. You will be a rock um, in terms of your faith. <laughs> and so um, that happened in Peter's name to encourage him. So, you know, this made me think, you know, good nicknames go a long ways if you want to nickname anyone. Um, it kind of reminds me of a, just a, a silly nickname that I gave to one of the gals in our church that I was at 12 years ago. We were in a hard situation ministering to Berkeley, ministering to homeless, gangs, serving those in prostitution. And there was a gal named Ruth, and I literally named her Ruthless. Not in a negative way, but I tried to spin it in a very positive way. You're ruthless. You're very strong in your faith. And so literally that stuck with her for a long time, and she went to school later on in the East Coast, and then we met her husband-to-be, and she literally, her husband-to-be literally said, I heard you called Ruth, my fiance, Ruthless for many years, and it stuck. So there's positivity, positivity in nicknames, and also you can hurt people with bad nicknames. Anyways, um, we also think of Peter as the one who denied Jesus three times. It's like, man, how'd you do that? But guess what? We deny Jesus Christ often, many times in our life. But yet Jesus Christ wanted to redeem him and help him to know that you have an important role in God's kingdom. So he asked him three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? If you do, feed my lambs, serve me. And so Peter was what? Restored. And then we know later on that Jesus Christ dies on the cross Peter knew about that, and then Peter was fully aware of Jesus' <coughs> death, burial, and resurrection. And so Peter is the one that led out in replacing Judas. Uh, Peter is the one who was filled with the Spirit and kicked off Pentecost. And really, by the time he's at Pentecost, P Peter's a different man. His faith is in change. He's on fire. He's like, man, I'm committed to the gospel. I know if I'm going to speak the gospel more. I know I'm going to have more persecution coming out at me. But he didn't care. He was so committed. Um, according to Peter, or excuse me, according to tradition, Peter watched his wife crucified. Okay, I've never watched my wife be crucified before, but Peter sought to encourage his wife when she was being crucified by encouraging her with these three words as she was being crucified. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. I believe he found those words to be the most encouraging thing he could say to his wife while she was being crucified. Remember the Lord. And then years later, Peter himself was um, 
crucified too, but he found himself not to be worthy to be crucified in the same way as Christ. So according to tradition, he asked to be crucified upside down, according to tradition. I don't know how that all works. I just know a lot more blood would be going to your head, um, but it sounds, it sounds terrible. So he himself lived his faith to such a degree that him and his wife were crucified. And so this is a man that experienced God's journey <coughs> of transformation, of embracing the gospel from early in his life to later in his life. And you can see and notice the difference. It's obvious the transformation that took place in his life. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, we see that Peter wrote this letter, but most likely he dictated to Salvanius, or also known as Silas. And so I believe that the Holy Spirit worked in and through Peter, superintended the, the details, the lettering, the scripting of First Peter as it was spoken from Peter himself to Salvanius or slight Titus to be pinned correctly according to, again, God's sovereign grace. And so I want you to see that. And I want you to know that everything that's going on in your life around is not an accident. You got God's sovereign grace is constantly at work. So perspective number two, God's sovereign grace among the, among the elect exiles. According to 1 Peter, the author of this book, he has some literally heartfelt instructions to some dear people in the latter part of verse 1. He said, so he's the writer, and so who is he addressing? It's just like a typical letter. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, in Asia, and Bith." Bithynia. And so he's, Peter is specifically addressing the elect exiles. So he's, he wants to remind them of God's sovereign grace in their lives as they have been dispersed into other cities. And so we're going to look at this first word, elect. This means exactly what it means in English, exactly what it says. God literally elects. These people that Peter is addressing are chosen by God, elected by God. It connotes the idea of one's being called out. And as we just frame up our theological understanding, it's literally to be called out of sin and out of rebellion, out of darkness into God's marvelous light. It's to literally be plucked out. It's literally to be selected by God's sovereign grace. Okay, um, so it is God who chooses people for salvation. Many of us think when we first come to Christ, oh yeah, I did the choosing, and I prayed the prayer, I repented. But understand your, <clears throat> your theology in a broader sense, and we, we take it from the broader whole. We've been talking about um, how to study God's Word, and there's one principle talking about... <clears throat> correlating scriptures with all, all of scripture. So yes, for sure it's true. Jesus says, you know, very clearly, believe in him and you'll be saved. Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. So there's a sense that God calls us to, 
to turn to him. But he also, if you read scripture, you understand a broader understanding of what's happening in salvation. We also know the Holy Spirit draws people to Christ. We also understand that God grants the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. And so God is at work in that sense. We also need to understand theologically that according to Ephesians chapters 2, verses 1 through 4, especially Ephesians chapter 2, 1, man is dead in our trespasses and sin. We are spiritually dead, okay? Um, I have dead relatives. There are times I, I've missed my mom for over 30 years, and I remember times so grieved I would jump on top of her grave just wishing she would come back and be my mom again because I missed her in my teenage years. And so I would jump on top of my mom's grave. It, you know, did nothing. I would scream loud. It would do nothing. She wouldn't know if there was flowers or there or not because she was dead. A spiritually dead person doesn't know that they're spiritually dead in need of help. Just like a physically dead person doesn't know they're dead and, well, they just know they're dead. So when you look at this term, elect, understand it is God who elects literally before the foundation of the earth to call some to be his. All right. Um, there's so much more to be said about the subject. I can't cover it all. I'll commend a book to you, Chosen by God by R.C. Sprawl, or talk to one of the seminarians, and we can just have long, nice conversations with you guys. Um, <clears throat> but, people, <clears throat> but Peter's addressing the churches <clears throat> in the province <clears throat> of modern-day Turkey, and we listed four regions that go to the west of Israel, in between Israel all the way out to where Italy and Rome are at. And so we look at the word, the next phrase I want to draw your attention to, he's speaking to exiles, those who are pilgrims, those who are passing through, um, those who are foreigners in a foreign land. So these people have been displaced. They're not in their homes. It's not comfortable. They might have been separated from family, from relatives. They've definitely lost their jobs. They're <coughs> not homeless. And so I don't know of any, we kind of get some of this today. Maybe if there's like a tornado and it just displaces you or maybe a big tsunami comes or in some places people are being pushed out of their countries and so these things are just difficult. Literally, there's migrating across the country just to flee and get out of <clears throat> um, danger. And so this is kind of what that's like. Um, but just to know that these chosen people are being dispersed. And so what Peter's driving at is just to remind them that you guys are elect. You, you're not to default into living like the world. Um, to live earthly and worldly lives, but to live lives worthy of one's calling and one's election. That's what I believe he's trying to encourage them with. And so there's two types of dispersions. Um, one I came across with a definite article, and it just speaks of the scattering of the Jews throughout the world in John chapter 7, verse 35 and James 1 1. But here in the context, there's no definite article. It's just a general sense of dispersion. And so it's a spiritual dispersion of these pilgrims into the, uh, the regions outside their homeland. And so that's a little technical aspect of the word dispersion there. Um, 
But it made me think about why are they being dispersed? Why are they running? Why are they running away from their home? And so that's the big question I've been wondering. So as I dug a little deeper, the, the answer is pretty straightforward. I, le- I touched on it earlier. Their city w- was burning. So it made me ask another question. Why was the city burning? It meant someone had to light it on fire. So at that time, the world was... <coughs> was ruled by the Roman world. Um, the emperor at that time was Nero. Nero had a mindset that he just wanted to build lots of buildings, big buildings, nice buildings, so that his name would be known. I mean, it's a little bit like Trump, you know, Trump Tower this, Trump that, just so I have big buildings, and you know I built those buildings. And so in order for Nero to build big buildings, he had to get rid of the old buildings. And so he set the buildings on fire in the city. So the people in this Roman Empire are, are mad and upset and that their, their homes are being burnt down, their temples are being built down, their shrines are being built down, the statues of their deities are, 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 are being burnt and so it touches on their religion and their faith. Like, oh man, my deity didn't did come through because what? My whole world is coming apart. Everything's burning up. And so people are mad at, at, at Nero. And so what Nero does, he comes up with this idea since, in, <clears throat> since the Jews had such a close relationship with the Christians at the time, Nero figured I had to get the tension away from myself because everyone's angry at me because I literally burned their city. So what Nero does is said, the Christians did it. The Christians burned your house down. Do you see what happened? So it turns the attention from Nero to the people of Rome being super mad at the Christians. So this put your mind in the situation. If I'm a Christian and I'm a Jew who became a believer and this happens, the word that would be screamed out today would be what? What's the f- proper language to say? That's unjust. We didn't do that. You think we burnt the city? No, it was Nero. He's the one who did it, but he's, he's using us as a scapegoat. We use scapegoatism a lot today. We blame other people. And so they could be crying foul play. They could be saying, man, that's a major injustice. For these believers, they, I, ha- I believe, had a lot of reason to be angry, to be upset, to maybe even want to take revenge. But what Peter does is saying, hey, I'm going to give you the gospel, remind you of the gospel, and to remind you that God has called us to live according to his ways and not bow down and succumb to your fleshly feelings and your temptation to become bitter and vengeful. So that's what's being addressed with the elect here and now. <clears throat> and so Peter reminds them of the gospel, that they are elect. And with this election, you have a future hope. And because you have a future hope, this world they now live in is not their home. The home is in the future where God has given us a citizenship in heaven, according to Philippians chapter two verses, I mean chapter three, verses twenty to twenty-one. He wants to remind them that their citizenship is in heaven, that a savior awaits them, and one day they'll have 
a new home and a new body. And so that's the second perspective. God's sovereign grace amongst the elect to go through all, all this um, persecution and injustice. So here's some encouragement here in perspective number three, God's sovereign grace according to foreknowledge. We see another big theological term right here, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So <clears throat> Paul's trying to, I mean, excuse me, Peter's trying to minister to these believers who are suffering, stressed out, who have been displaced, who have lost much. And he's wants, he wants to remind them of God's sovereign grace. It is God's foreknowledge. What is foreknowledge? Um, there's, I'm going to contrast this idea of what this means and what it doesn't mean. But to start thinking about what does foreknowledge mean in this case? I'll begin what it, with what it doesn't mean and then what it does mean to help you to see what Peter's talking about. So in the grand scope of the, the theological wor world, there's, I'll call man-centered theology, which is not good theology, and there's God-centered theology, which is God-centered, and we consider that valuable, good, and, and biblical. But there's one form we call, <clears throat> when we look at this particular word of foreknowledge, <clears throat> some people look at a very humanistic, man-centered perspective that says, okay, let's look at this word foreknowledge and <clears throat> let's break it down in this way. Okay, God, if God knows all, God's just going to look through all of history and the corridor of history and know every human being, and he's going to watch every human being down in the future of history, and he's going to be able to say which humans decided they're going to follow Christ or not. And on the basis of that foreknowledge, he's going to say, okay, I foreknew that person because that person decided to follow me. The problem with this is it makes God less than God and less than sovereign. It also, the problem with this, it exalts man's capacity to save himself and also to choose and also to make himself dead and now alive, uh, which goes, flies in the face of our, our correlation and understanding the gospel in, in its fullest sense. And so this would be, I'll call it the unbiblical view of foreknowledge. Um, let me contrast this. And also, as you think of God in this way, it really distorts who God is. He's no longer sovereign. He's no longer the one who saves and delivers. And man is able to save himself as God looks down the corridor of life. <clears throat> now, let's contrast this with what foreknowledge means biblically. And so, <clears throat> the Greek word prognosis <clears throat> is a means and has the idea of to predetermine or to foreordain, okay? So this basically has the idea that of God foreordaining or predetermining who will be called, who will be elected, or according to God's holy knowledge and sovereign rule of the whole world and in the matter of, in the particular matters of salvation, okay? So, we know in Ephesians chapters, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, God talks about election or predestination twice. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us, <coughs> blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He even, even as he chose us before him, 
in him before the foundation of the world. So before even the whole entire foundation of the world was made, he chose people to be saved in him, that we would be holy and blameless. So when we would come to him, that we would live lives holy and blameless. This is what Peter's after. He wants us to live holy and blameless lives at that time and this time today, before him. And then in love, he again predestined, predestined us to adoption, to, <coughs> for adoption in himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So as you understand God's foreknowledge to predetermine, to ordain beforehand, it is God who alone saves, calls out, determines who would be saved, and they'll come to understand that as God draws them, elects them, <coughs> makes them, and calls them his own. And so that's the second, the third perspective, God's sovereign grace in foreknowledge. And again, I want to, we could talk about this and look at it in different ways. There's so many good books on this. But this is an encouragement to these exile believers to, to remind them that this is part of God's sovereign plan. And God has elected you to go through this. And so to, to know that this is not an accident. God wants you to live out his sovereign purposes. And so it links together with the, this third, fourth perspective, God's sovereign grace in sanctification. It's easy to say, hey, I'm just going to flip out. I'm angry. I'm mad now. Or if I'm them, I've experienced this major injustice. I'm just going to, you know, do crazy things. But Paul reminds his dear brothers and sisters in Christ of sanctification of the Spirit. And so the Spirit of God does a number of things. The Spirit of God regenerates us, makes us spiritually alive when we're spiritually dead. The Spirit of God grants faith, repentance, adopts us, fills us, grants us spiritual gifts, sanctifies us. And so we're looking at this idea of sanctification. Sanctification is simply the process uh, of being consecrated, changed, transformed into the image of God, and not just to be set apart from one thing to another, but to be set apart for God's purposes, to live out God's purposes. And so in first, excuse me, Second Thessalonians chapters 2, verses 13 and 15, it says this. Paul gives a similar encouragement. He says this, in verse 13, we ought always to give thanks to you, to God for you, brothers beloved by the, <coughs> by the Lord, because you chose, God chose you <coughs> as a first, first fruits t- to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. They come together. You are sanctified by truth. And he's saying, for those who have been chosen, the next step in the process is to be sanctified. Verse 4, to this he called you through our gospel. Again, so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, guess what? He says, stand firm and hold to the d- traditions that you were taught by us, either, <clears throat> either by our spoken word or by our letter. Literally, your pastors, your growth group leaders, your discipleship leaders are literally trying to say the same thing to you guys today. Be sanctified. 
Stand firm in the gospel over and over. There's no reason we need to flip out. So I just want to remind you of the big picture of the gospel once again. God walks us through justification. This is to be freed from the penalty of sin. And he continues the process of sanctification or purification, freeing us from the power of sin. And then one day we'll reach glorification that will free us from the presence of sin in this life to one day we'll face Jesus Christ face to face with no sin as we experience life in God's glory. And so that's the fourth perspective of God's plan to sanctify us when um, we're suffering and when we're going through hard and difficult times and also when we're going through easy times to the point that we're, we're sanctified. And guess what? That we would obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Perspective number five, God's sovereign grace in lordship. Okay? God is moving us in a process that (laughs) the evidence of sanctification is that we're yielding our lives more and more to obedience to Jesus Christ. If you want to know if you're becoming mature in Jesus Christ, it's not that you know more or you show up to church more or maybe even if you give more. But I, I would say your better area of determining if you're growing in Christ is, are you learning and growing to obey the Lord more consistently? Growing in obedience to the Lord. You are following Christ. I, I don't know what it is with, <coughs> with myself at times. I show myself to be an unde- un- unbeliever where I just don't obey Jesus Christ. And I, I function as an uh, unbeliever. But then the Lord's Spirit works in me and reminds me, yes, I am to believe the Lord. I believe these things in Scripture, and I give myself in submission to the Lord. And then I know some people, they just don't go in this, they just go in these modes of this Christian faith where I just call myself a Christian by name, but there's very little obedience <laughs> for long periods of time. And so again, God's sovereign work in His people is to move them to a place of greater obedience. We're familiar with Ephesians chapters 2, verse 8 and 9, where it says, For by faith you have been saved, not by your own works, but by grace. Okay? But you also need to understand verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as we're walking with the Lord, we are walking in obedience to Jesus Christ. And so that progress is a good determiner of God's sovereign grace in your life. And so when things are hard and when things are difficult and when we're going through a pandemic, when you see greater obedience in your Christ, you should be in your life. You should be encouraged that God's sovereign grace is working in your life. If you have been coming to church and you see yourself less obedient this time, you're just checked out in so many ways, you should be concerned that you don't see God's sovereign grace in your life. And just evaluate your Christian life. Am I a Christian or not? If I am a Christian, ask yourself, am I grieving the Holy Spirit in some way that I need to repent of a particular sin or not? Perspective number six, God's sovereign grace in security. This is an awesome point that Peter makes. Not just a point, but a truth. Peter wants to assure the the elect exiles that they are secure. 
That's just awesome to remind them of their security in Christ. And so he reminds them, not that you're just elected, not that you're part of just God's foreknowledge, but you're experiencing the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. And so this phrase is based on Moses' sprinkling sacrificial blood on the people of Israel. It's a symbolic sealing of their covenant made with God in the Old Testament. So in the New Testament, we have the New Covenant where Christ's blood um, seals our security in Him as we have trusted and put our faith in Jesus Christ, finished work, complete work that was done on the Christ, on the cross to atone for our sins. And so, so this is just an amazing encouragement. God's sovereign grace secures us in God's final, permanent, once and for all work on the cross as we place our faith and trust in Him and Him alone to save us. The last point, perspective number seven. Just take a, I'll take a deep breath for my own good. Breathe. And also for your good, breathe. So just imagine what we're going through, and but imagine what they're going through. Way worse. Categorically, way worse. <laughs> I mean, just imagine yourself. No home. <laughs> no place to live. No job. You might have been separated from your wife or kids. And you're just walking to a foreign land. And there's people that <laughs> want to cause you harm. Peter gives them the best encouragement when we face trials. And he says this, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In the letters, you see this all the time. May the grace and peace be with you all. May the grace and peace be, you know, with you. But this time he says something a little bit different. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So this is, fascinating to me. When you think of grace, don't just think of grace as that which saves, which is very important. God saves you through his amazing saving grace. But also understand God's grace is for our living too. He gives us common grace. He gives us grace in our spirit. He gives us all the fruit of the spirit. That's grace for you. Joy, peace, self-control, all that is for you, for your good and God's glory. Um, he, He gives an abundance. And he also gives you peace. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been given peace with God the Father. But he also gives you a peace that surpasses all understanding. So things might be crazy in your life, but he gives you this inner abiding peace that the world cannot explain, but we understand through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says, to this grace and to this peace, he says, may it be multiplied Big time. So my wife and kids, we like to do this once in a while. We live like three or four blocks by a Baskin Robbins and a Dunkin' Donut. And sometimes when we feel a little lame, we say, hey, let's get some ice cream. And we all perk up and get our ice cream. Or let's get some donuts. <laughs> my sons are protesting. We're shaking. No, I'm just teasing you. Okay, so anyways, so it's, it's one thing to say, hey, you know, we're going to give you each a cone, right? And that'd be like, some ice cream. But what Paul is saying, to the full measure here, and so you may be thinking, it's not just a a, a scoop of chocolate. It's not just the the whole container of chocolate. Here's all of Baskin Robbins for you. Take the whole thing and just know that I've given you more than enough 
to endure all the pandemic, all that you're going through, all the virtual learning, and any other things that you'll face in this life as you live your Christian life. I want you to know our God is enough, and He gives enough, and He'll continue to give all that you'll need. Brothers and sisters, we're in a good place. And these theological words aren't just words. It's sovereign grace for your good and for God's glory.